Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The chief financial officer of the Chinese tech giant Huawei was arrested at the request of the United States and Canada earlier this month, and the Chinese government has demanded the release of Meng Wanzhou. The China Times, uh, Global Times newspaper said that the U.S. is resorting to despicable hooliganism. The markets have gone down sharply again today on the news, fearing what might happen to U.S.-China trade talks. With me to talk about this is Wen Huang. He's the author of A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel, amongst other books. Thanks for joining me, Wen. Hello, Jerome. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, company Huawei? I mean, for most of it, it's just a big uh, cell phone manufacturer and from China. What is it? Uh, what are its roots? Huawei to uh, many in China, uh, in the Middle East or Africa, it is a huge name. We probably Americans here when you hear Huawei, it sounded so abstract. But in in these regions I just mentioned, it is as popular as Apple, if not more popular, because it's an, uh, the world's second largest uh, cell phone producers, and. Uh, it has a very mysterious background. It was founded in 1987 in China's southern city of Shenzhen next to Hong Kong. And the founder himself and then also the president of the board, they were supposed to, they were supposedly have military background, especially one of the, the, the founder is supposed to use to work for the Chinese army officer in the Chinese uh, military. And also their, their board president used to be a Chinese national security official. So because this uh, mysterious background, people monitored this, uh, this company very closely. It, it became the second largest global company, multinational company, but never went public. And people just thought they had a lot of the Chinese government background. That's why for for years, and the U.S. government has warned against the Huawei, saying that uh, uh, Huawei tech, a telecommunications company, uh, they if they sell some of the, your networking or any of the equipment, it, they could monitor or it could pose a threat to Chinese national security. For example, when I, um, my brother, each time I visit China, my brother gave me a Huawei cell I never did use it here because I never bring my Apple phone to China. When I'm there, I use that. But when I told my friend that I had a Huawei phone, all my Chinese friends here in the U.S., they say, oh, be careful. The cell phone might have the chips that monitor you. It's from the Chinese government. So this is where it comes from for years. And the Huawei is always associated with uh, Chinese government-sponsored uh, telecommunications companies. Now, uh, That's uh, also... Uh, go ahead. When a lot of the reports are talking about a connection with uh, ZTE, the ZTE scandal that uh, was going on between the U.S. government and uh, ZTE, there were security concerns there. What's the connection? ZTE is another huge uh, telecommunications companies in China. They also sell cell phones, but even though they are... Uh, they are not as big as Huawei, but they are also very big. And in April uh, this year, uh, the U.S. government issued a ban, especially under the Trump administration. They uh, claimed that uh, ZTE uh, violated the U.S. law, the, the ban, like and sold uh, telecommunications equipment or sold products to Iran and North Korea. And because of that, and then the U.S. banned, uh, the U.S. government banned all U.S. companies exporting the chips or 
and the stuff to ZTE. The U.S. bank almost caused the ZTE to collapse. And finally, in July, the Trump administration reverses uh, its role after ZTE fired its senior managers and paid $1.2 billion in fines. I think that's the, the number. And people claim that the ZTE is, an, is like Huawei and they violate the rules. And then while investigating ZTE, some of the senior managers betrayed Huawei, saying that when you accuse us of selling it, but Huawei, China's largest telecommunications companies, they are also violating the rules. They are also selling stuff to North Korea and Iran. That's how got the, the, the U.S. investigators in attention. That's what the, the media has reported. But most people, the Chinese people at least, they believe that uh, all these attempts are, uh, all these arrests, all the, the issues that make a big issue out of these, uh, these uh, violations is actually U.S. real attempts to restrict China's high-tech development. Because right now, Huawei and uh, ZTE, they're very advanced in developing the 5G technology. And the next year, Huawei is supposedly going to bid for uh, 5G projects in Europe. And for for months, the U.S. government has warned European governments not to adopt Huawei technology, saying that uh, it poses a threat to its national security. And the U.S., uh, the China, China believes that the U.S. is trying to use this one to stop uh, the bidding, and so the U.S. high tech companies could go get in and get the tech, get the contract. So all these different uh, things going on, and also there's a conspiracy theory saying that because the the rest happened right uh, after uh, uh, Xi Jinping, President Xi in China, and President Trump. They just reached the truce in the trade uh, trade uh, trade war, and people believe that uh, it's somebody within the either Trump was aware of it, or somebody within the Trump administration, or they try to jeopardize the the, the trade agreement. So these all these conspiracy Are, theories are floating. Go now, ahead. One other of the conspiracy theories that I've heard is about a Stanford uh, scientist who's from China, and he recently committed suicide. I understand he met with the head of. Uh, the chief financial officer for Huawei, who was arrested several times. Um, what what is happening there? Exactly, it's the uh, there is a Chinese American scientist, a physicist at Stanford University. He uh, uh, Thomson Reuters in 2014 saying he was a big contender for the Nobel Peace Prize, Nobel Prize for physicist physics. And he himself was uh, well connected with Huawei. And Huawei, when they heard that he was uh, an expert on conductivity or something with the chips, they were very interested. He was approached by by Huawei executives. And also uh, because of his, uh, uh, China also used a lot of money to hire him back to give talks and to do research. And then suddenly on the day when the Huawei, the daughter of the Huawei founder, or she was also the CFO, after she was arrested and this Chinese American scientist committed suicide, even though his family claimed that his he battled with a depression for years, but people immediately made the connection because December 1st or somebody said that uh, he had a meeting with the CFO of Huawei in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. So all these 
conspiracy theories out right now. They're they're buzz on social media, especially the Chinese social media. And as people have been talking about it all day long, and I came to Florida with two uh, journalist friends, Chinese journalists. They were all they all left to cover this story huh. to show that it's really huge in China because it's like uh, something happened to Apple. And in China, Huawei is the Apple and they are more popular. Now, it seems like lastly, of the thing we should expect is for China to retaliate and arrest some executive in the in the uh, in China of the U.S. Right now, the Chinese government, especially the city Shenzhen, where uh, Huawei is, uh, is headquarters, they issued a very strong statement. They feel that uh, uh, the Huawei CFO, she has violated no rules. They feel like this, the U.S. attempt to jeopardize the trade trade uh, tr- the trade agreement or uh, to restrict China's technology development. So they vowed to uh, vowed retaliation. But we expected, and a lot of people in the media, they expected that China might retaliate by detaining some uh, senior U.S. executives who are based in China. So we just have to see how this thing was, was going to sort out. Right. But right now, it is a huge deal in, in China, probably U.S., we don't feel it because this name is so abstract. Right. But in China, this is a this is a huge news. Wen Huang is the author of A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel, amongst other books. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the U.S. detention of the chief financial officer of the Chinese tech giant Huawei. Thanks very much for joining us. Coming up after the break, we'll have some thoughts about the otherworldly ambitions of the CBS show God Friended Me. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In recent years, the media scene has been in crisis, dealing with issues around race, religion, and representation. A new network television show from CBS called God Friended Me turns many classic tropes on their head. The story follows Miles, an atheist podcaster who receives a Facebook friend request from an account called God. Through a series of serendipitous Facebook encounters, Miles begins to question his convictions. Chicago actress Francesca Ling is a guest star on the show, and she recently spoke with Worldview's Julian Haida. You know, I think it's interesting to have a character who is an atheist, right? Because usually it's someone who was maybe, are they sent from a supernatural world or do they, you know, pretend to be somebody or whatever, or, or it's just not explained who they are and it's set in this sort of religious overtone. Um, but our main character is not religious. In fact, he's the complete opposite. But then we sort of learn why and what set him down on that path. And then, you know, faith is something that everyone struggles with. You never have any answers. You just have faith that there are answers out there. It's a different type of show, heartwarming, and I think it'll move people whether you're religious or not, you know, it doesn't it really doesn't matter because it's something for everybody. Yeah, and it, that religious message is like really in your face. It's kind of, you know, this is a spiritual God is in struggle. the title. God is, <laughs> God is in the title, which seems 
you know, uh, 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 unusual for, mm-hmm. you know, a place like the United States where, you know, nobody will, like you'd mentioned, kind of will say, well, I'm an atheist, but few people will also, you know, religious belonging is on the decline. So I'm curious, what have you heard from people who've seen the show so far? I mean, much of the cast is young and yes. is, there something, is there something about it that, that uncovers this taboo in, in America? I've heard from people from all sides. There's someone who's doing a podcast about the show and about finding meaning in it uh, from a religious perspective. But then I've also heard from people who maybe are religious or are not, but that's not why they're interested in the show. Maybe they're interested in the show because of its diversity. They're starting to see more of themselves or their friends, you know, on TV. And there's there's been a lot of discussion, particularly kind of in the American political discourse about religion, particularly kind of white evangelicalism as being this this conservative element. But a lot of people also point to the black church, mm-hmm. uh, Christian traditions that value things like uh, inclusion, racial diversity. Does any of that come out in the show? So we already know the, the relationship and the difficulties between Miles and his father. And of course, Miles's father is a black he pastor. Is a black pastor, and, and he's a, a priest, very well known one. And some of their issues is, you know, if if Miles is out there publicly as an atheist, what does that say as a pastor that that's the son he raised, someone who went so far away from his faith? Um, but the creators of the show are actually Jewish, so it's a different faith. And one, there's two creators, and. One is a believer and one's a non-believer. So that's an interesting dynamic too that we have in the creative aspect behind that's driving this. This show at its core is about helping people. And that's what Miles and the whole team, that's what we all do each episode. And it's not always an easy thing to do. You know, you sometimes you want to help people, your heart's in the right place, but it costs you something or maybe you learn something along the way. I think we can all relate to that no matter where you're from. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, there's a line in the show where Miles, the, the lead, talks about how prescribing to a religion is almost a, like, revoking from responsibility, that, mm. that, that religion is, is something that is supernatural and to be rational is to be responsible. But mm-hmm. it seems like he needs to be egged on by this social media account called God mm-hmm. to – be led to help people because he otherwise wouldn't because of, you know, you don't want to be a creep. You don't want to kind of talk to people. <laughs> so uh, is is that part of the message of the show where kind of people need to be kind of pushed to have a little bit more empathy, pushed to help others a little bit maybe, more? Maybe. Maybe. I think, you know, if you need religion or something, you need that that purpose, that mission to give you that push. That's great if that's what does it for you. Maybe that's not what you need. Maybe it's just a, a community that you join where all in, in the spirit of just helping even just your own neighborhood. If God or religion, if that's what helps you get there, then that's great. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Hyde. I'm talking with Francesca Ling, who's a guest star in God Friended Me, which is on CBS. You grew up here in Chicago. You are born and raised. Born and raised. You're the, the daughter of, of legendary uh, anchor, ABC anchor, uh, Linda Yu. And, yes, but, I am. But you, you went overseas to study acting. Um, yeah. How did Chicago launch this trajectory of, of studying 
abroad and then bringing you back home to, to, to work on a project like this? Chicago is such a great theater town. We have fantastic theater, fantastic actors, and it's a very artistic town, so I, I'm very grateful to have grown up here. My mom wanted to expose me to everything and everything so I, I could have the opportunities. And I danced and I sang and she did all that for me. So I decided that's what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted a different type of training. And the Brits are fantastic at this, at both on stage and on screen. And so I decided to go out to uh, London and Oxford to study and then made my way out to L.A. And it's it's been a dream out there, And but I like to come back here and, and work. And now I'm in New York and for the show, so I'm all over the place. But uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to have been born and raised here. So I, I mentioned that, that um, you are, you are uh, mixed, mixed race. Yes. And, you know, in the past, it yeah. seemed that people point to a problem of particularly whitewashing in movies and television, the phenomenon where non-white characters are cast by white actors mm-hmm. or certain characters who are non-white portrayed as tropes in, sure. in stereotypical manner. Absolutely. Being mixed race, if you were um, cast in a particular role that may, may be condescending to your background, um, how would you handle that? And do you think that that kind of thing is going away? I think it's definitely going away, and I'm so happy about that. Um, and being mixed race, you know, for uh, my mother's Chinese, obviously, my father's white, and I think people have looked at me and not been able to identify what I am just by looking at me. Um, I feel very close to my Chinese heritage. I can speak Mandarin Chinese. And often when I do, people are shocked, right? If an Asian-looking person suddenly speaks an Asian language, they just figure that's what they are or their parents spoke it at home, you know. But when I do it, it they don't see it at first. So that's something I think people are starting to come around to that just because you you have a different cultural background or you're mixed doesn't mean you, you have to be one thing or you have to be something that you can identify just by sight. And seeing Asians now in lead roles, like when Crazy Rich Asians came out, oh, I had a party. I saw it three times. <laughs> I was so excited because for me to see Asian culture portrayed in that way and you know attractive Asian men – leading men on screen and not just like the quirky, funny, short sidekick, you know, it's... Well, the age-old age trope has been um, of desexualized Asian men. Yes. And so the, yes. in Crazy Rich Asians, that was a case. Or in the first episode of God Friended Me, we see a South Asian character mm-hmm. being... You Having know, a relationship. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. it's, it's great. And it's because we're, we're people, right? Now we're starting to accept that. So I'm very grateful for that shift. About and time. <laughs> the finding, the, finding the complexity. Did you, um, related to the show, did you grow up in a religious household? No. No. So has it, has it, has it, has it, you know, dealing with these kinds of topics where the characters, some of which grow up in religious households, some of which don't, but then maybe come to their own, whether in one direction or another, uh, religiously in adulthood, has mm-hmm. that, has that at all informed um, a spiritual journey for you? Uh, in adulthood either. So I did not grow up in a spiritual household, but my mother did. Um, My 
mom's father was a Protestant minister. And growing up in a very strict religious setting. And sort of like Miles, because of of how that affected the family, she did not go in that direction, at least not as as strictly as, you know, her father. So so she raised her kids not necessarily with religion, but always with the thought of you make your own choices. Educate yourself on what is out there, what do you find meaning in, and you choose. And whatever feels right to you and whatever answers it gives you, then that's what you should do. It was never, oh, no, you you shouldn't be religious or, no, you absolutely must be religious. It was never that. So I always had a freedom to explore and discover and make choices for myself. Francesca Ling uh, is a guest star in the new CBS show, God Friended Me. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was Worldview's Julian Haida. God Friended Me was just extended for its first full season on CBS. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we'll talk with the Chicago chapter of the United Nations Association. They've got a project to help refugees in Kenya. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. The Chicago chapter of the United Nations Association is pitching in to help refugees in Kenya. We're going to find out about that effort. With me is Sana Hussein. She's the Special Initiatives Chair for the Chicago chapter of the United Nations Association. Great to have you. Thank you, Jerome. Uh, For people who don't know much about the United Nations Association, what is it? What kind of things are you doing? So our chapter is one of uh, several chapters across the United States. The Chicago chapter, as other chapters do, we advance initiatives of the UN, and we do that. We're a membership organization, and so we have programs that, um, that delve into the initiatives of the United Nations. And you're pretty well known for the Model UN that happens uh, all over the country, all over the world. We are. It's a very, very popular um, uh, program. It's uh, We have very enthusiastic participants, anywhere from uh, college students to uh, middle-aged ad- adults. And a lot of times the students are more prepared than the adults are. So it's interesting to see how well aware they are of the issues and know how to advocate uh, towards resolution. Now, I... I wanted to ask you about something that happened this week because um, the United Nations is a contentious issue for many politicians. The U.S. has berated the United Nations. And uh, this week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said something in Brussels. He made a speech where he was questioning the role of most international organizations, including the United Nations. And here's what he said about the U.N. Today at the United Nations, peacekeeping missions drag on for decades, no closer to peace. The UN's climate-related treaties are viewed by some nations as simply a vehicle to redistribute wealth. Anti-Israel bias has been institutionalized. 
regional powers collude to vote the likes of Cuba and Venezuela under the Human Rights Council. You know, the UN was founded as an organization that welcomed peace-loving nations. I asked today, does it continue to serve its mission faithfully? That was Mike Pompeo speaking earlier this month in Brussels, earlier this week in Brussels. And um, Sana Hussein, what do you think when you hear that? Is, is the United Nations still promoting the cause of peace in the world? Of course it is. It, it's not the only association that's, that, that we're, that's working uh, towards those, uh, those goals. We work with many, many institutions. And the entire purpose of the United Nations is to bring peace. And uh, how do you feel when your government is out there questioning the role of the United Nations? Well, I think that um, when you have people in government who don't want to support um, refugees, for instance, the the refugee situation is a worldwide issue. There have been over 65 million people who have been displaced. And although we do have people coming into the U.S., they come through through a process, so we're not flooded like other countries who are actually on the borders of the wars or the conflicts that are going on. So I, I think um, that this rhetoric is all about making it look like we shouldn't be focused on this. It's not our issues. We should only focus our on our own nation and to kind of wipe themselves of those issues. The problem is, is that those issues will somehow affect us. There's no way around it. And we can see right now uh, what what's happening with the wars that are going on during the past 10 years, but especially during the past couple of years between Yemen and Syria. It's a global, uh, it's a global problem. It's got to be addressed by all the countries. And one, one or two countries who are near the conflict cannot sustain those types of issues. And it will just always lead to more conflict. I, and now you, you mentioned uh, refugees and the refugee issue, and the United Nations Association has taken up the refugee issue. And explain what uh, you're doing. So our program is called Adopt a Future. The United Nations Association came up with a program in 2016 and was launched in 2017. It's a two-year program. And each chapter volunteer, can volunteer to, um, to adopt it as their initiative during that two-year campaign. Our association voted on it, and so we took it on starting in January of 2017. And what we do is we raise funds to build classrooms in a refugee camp that's located in Kenya. Tell us about the refugee camp that you're involved with. The refugee camp is called the Kakuma Refugee Camp. It's the world's uh, second largest refugee camp. The Dab, which is also in Kenya, has about 250,000 refugees. And Kakuma, the one we're raising for, has about 190,000 refugees Half of them are children. And this is a long-running refugee camp. It was for South Sudanese, Somalis, Ethiopians. Exactly. Uh, who, came in, who were right on the border region there. Exactly. Uh, the camps were, I believe it was in the 1990s that they were, that they were built. So uh, if you've got a camp that's 50% children and it's been there since the 90s, you need classrooms. Exactly. It was it's never anticipated that refugee camp is built to, to last forever. It's just that these conflicts, you know, kept going on. Um, for instance, um, a recently elected congressman, Ilhan Omar, was a refugee in the Dadaab refugee camp, which is the largest refugee camp. And she, I believe she was there for five years, and she left when she was 12 years old. She didn't speak English. She came to America initially to North Carolina, and then she ended up in Minnesota. And she just won a race 
and and she's now a congresswoman. She wouldn't have been able to do that <laughs> without education. Now, she was a speaker at one of your previous events. You, you invited her. You knew that she was um, had been in a refugee camp in Kenya and, and had her come in. Exactly. Um, it was just fortunate that we're working on this for two years and we're trying to spread the message as to the importance of education. And to have a former refugee almost in our neighborhood uh, was something I couldn't resist. And so we reached out uh, to her and to people from her campaign and she was very pleased to come, and she addressed our. She met a lot of our members um, at the event, and and she gave um, a story that was very touching. Not a, not just about the importance of education, but what it's really like to be a refugee. Um, you know, she she left that camp in the 1990s, and she said she came here. She got educated. She has a family. She's now a congresswoman, and she has a friend who is still at that camp who is married and has, I believe, five or six children and hasn't been able to get out. So not everybody gets the opportunity to leave a refugee camp either. I read a book about the Dadaab refugee camp, and it really was unbelievable to talk to, to like realize the way of life these people have that is permanent. They're, they're there all the time. They, they have almost no choice in life. Uh, some leave the camp for a little while and then come back. Exactly. I think that's the other... Uh, difference between us being the United States and not understanding what a refugee camp really looks like. You know, if you're in a border country or you're in that country, if you're in Kenya, you pretty much can understand what camp life really means. Now, um, in order to raise money for a classroom at the refugee camp, you're having an event on December 18th at Alhambra, the uh, wonderful West Loop uh, restaurant and, and meeting place. And uh, I'm going to emcee the event. It's uh, going to be fun. It's on December 18th. I'm looking forward to it. We really appreciate that that you will be joining us that evening. I um, I always anticipate a great program. I'm very pleased that we have a lot of supporters, but we also get a lot of new faces, and we're hoping that uh, we we reach our goal. Now, um, so the event is December 18th. It's at the Alhambra uh, Palace, and people can get more information on the United Nations Chicago website, unachicago.org. UNAUSAChicago.org. UNAUSA.org. And uh, there's an Eventbrite as well. uh, uh, UNAUSAChicago.org. Correct. And it's at, there's an Eventbrite uh, as well, and people can get more information at the Eventbrite? Yes, everything is on the website, all the information, and tickets are easy to purchase. And all of the proceeds will go to the building of this classroom. Sana Hussein is the Special Initiatives Chair for the Chicago Chapter of the United Nations Association USA. Thanks a lot for joining us, and uh, we'll see you on December 18th. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening to Worldview today. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about the global suicide rate going down. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.